1: During the period after the Civil War, large numbers of white settlers from the United States migrated westward to colonize the North American interior and dispossess indigenous tribes of their ancestral homelands. Around the same time, anthropologists, linguists, archeologists, and other scholars began amassing indigenous cultural objects by the millions. Convinced that indigenous tribes were naturally doomed to extinction, These collectors donated the objects they amassed to museums and universities to preserve remnants of what they erroneously believed was a dying race. In his new book, Prophets and Ghosts, the historian Samuel Redman delves into the complex legacy of salvage anthropology to learn what it can teach us about the history of American imperialism and settler colonialism. As this book reveals, The Salvage Catalog betrays a vision of Native cultures clouded by racist assumptions, with lasting consequences. The Salvage Impulse fueled the stupendous growth of American museums at the turn of the 20th century, and it significantly shaped popular ideas about Indigenous culture. Prophets and Ghosts also delves into the moral challenges that are inherent in the Salvage Project. While they often resorted to outright theft, salvage anthropologists also made important contributions to preserving the cultural legacy of indigenous people. Still, the resulting portrait of native cultures that they produced often served to reinforce the public's confidence in the hierarchies of racial superiority and inferiority. As Redmond argues in the final pages of this book, quote, salvage anthropology's problem was that collectors working in the movement's heyday were often more committed to creating relationships with things than creating relationships with the people who made them. This obsession with objects rather than people, he concludes, allowed salvage anthropologists to see some truths while becoming blind to many others. Nonetheless, the objects they collected can still serve as a source of invaluable knowledge for researchers, museum visitors, as well as the descendants of the people who made them. The question of what should be done with such collections is urgent as well, which prompted Redmond to interview a wide range of indigenous artists and curators who offer fresh perspectives on the history and impact of cultural salvage, pointing to new ideas on how we might contend with this challenging inheritance. Prophets and Ghosts is a rich and eye-opening book, and Redmond does not shy away from taking a hard look at it The Troubled and Troubling Legacy of Salvage Anthropology. It's deeply researched, beautifully written, a real pleasure to read. Welcome, Sam Redman, to New Books in Science, Technology and Society. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to talk with you about this wonderful book, Prophets and Ghosts, the Story of Salvage Anthropology. I wanted to begin by asking you a question about the way that you begin the book itself, which is with a meeting between the famous late 19th, early 20th century ethnomusicologist, Francis Densmore, uh, bet- a meeting between her and the famous Apache warrior Geronimo, which took place at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Can you tell us a little bit about their encounter and what it reveals about the complex and contested history of salvage anthropology? Absolutely. So I've uh, been interested
2: in this character in the history of anthropology named Frances Densmore, as you mentioned, for some time, uh, because she's an incredible, fascinating character. There have been some recent books and articles that have been written about her, but I think her story is a little underdrawn. But she's also from my hometown in Minnesota. So she grew up next to the same. Uh, Native community that I happen to grow up next to and um, from an early age becomes really interested and quite frankly obsessed with Native American music and opportunities to collect Native American music. She travels all around the country at the behest of the Bureau of American Ethnology or the federal government essentially as a contractor and she realizes that hundreds if not thousands of native people will be at the 1904 st louis world's fair including geronimo as you mentioned and so she essentially writes in a an essay about how she stalks geronimo and um in very racialist and indeed racist sort of tropes talks about how um, she needed to uh, emulate the, the pa- you know, quoting from her now, the patience of her red brethren. Um, and it indicates, the story indicates the degree to which people were able to uh, sort of suspend ethical norms or, or uh, uh, you know, they, in, in this era, there were few sort of established ethical frameworks for, for collecting these materials. So in her desire to collect and preserve for the future songs and stories, she was willing to, to basically do anything, including uh, follow around and literally hide in bushes behind Geronimo and wait for him to hum a song. And when he does, she writes it down and then later publishes it as European style uh, sheet music uh, for people to, to read and um, in some places emulate. So the historian Phil Deloria has described this as sort of entering music into the national grist. You know, like sort of a it's, it's just classic appropriation in, in that sense. Um, but I became interested in that story because um, we know something about these grand expeditions uh, that took place to collect materials. And we maybe know something about some of the more famous collectors or, or, or anthropologists but it turns out there this is this widespread massive effort and it it has all sorts of interesting outcomes and and uh, problems including this episode in
1: 1904 that you mentioned. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to dig a little deeper into the early history of salvage anthropology if I might. So can you talk a bit about how and why the desire to collect and preserve the language, the material culture as well as, well as the music of indigenous people First emerged in nineteenth-century America. Yeah, uh, so it's there's an
2: important context here of the what's often described by historians as the myth of the vanishing Indian. So in the nineteenth century, and indeed before that, as far back as the seventeenth century, people are sort of talking about how the indigenous people that they encounter uh, were. There's a declension narrative that they are doomed to disappear. Um, and, you know, native people have have uh, pointed out to me, uh, uh, they're, they're like a, a native scholar, Paulette Steeves, uh, wrote a review of, of my book in science, and she rightfully points out, you know, there's some reason to, to, to buy into this myth, if you're sort of in the mainstream European or, or American uh, population in this era in the 19th century, think of the vast amounts of disease uh, the impacts of colonialism, just in terms of displacement and episodes like the Trail of Tears, that lead to widespread death, uh, in addition to massacres and other horrible abuses, uh, that lead to outright population decline. So it was not this like huge mental leap for people then to say, okay, we think that native people, native cultures are are doomed to disappear, and then salvage anthropology really becomes this response to this prevalent myth, this idea that Native people were doomed to disappear. So in response to that, we have to go, that is meaning these collecting institutions or anthropologists, the federal government, but also a whole host of amateurs, missionaries, army medical officers, many, many people get involved in this project to collect and document as rapidly as possible in the face of this vanishing myth idea.
1: Yeah, thanks for mentioning Paulette Steve's. In fact, she I interviewed her a couple episodes ago about her book, The Indigenous Pleistocene. So if, if people are interested listening to this episode of the podcast or interested to learn more about Paulette's work, I'd encourage you to check out the new book website where you can find an interview with her as well. It's a super interesting book. Um, I wanted to follow up and and ask about a particular figure. So we've talked a little bit about Francis Densmore, and I wanted to ask about another important. Figure in the early history of salvage anthropology, who's Alice Cunningham Fletcher. Can you tell us a little bit more about Fletcher, who she was and how she contributed to the early history of salvage anthropology? So again, I wanna credit that there are other scholars
2: who um, have been writing about uh, the the notion that women participated in uh, the story of the history of anthropology in really key uh, ways. and, and ways that we have it fully sort of incorporated into the story. So um, like Frances Densmore, who's a bit younger, but Alice Cunningham Fletcher uh, was arguably this pioneering um, uh, anthropologist who uh, wrote, imp- or spent a huge amount of time living and working with native people. So she's got this uh, contradictory legacy. Like one thing about studying history, right, is that we have to become comfortable with contradictions. Um, So here's someone who, if you read her letters, if you read her writings, she very deeply cares about Native Americans. Like that is just, it it is very clear that she has this empathetic desire to help Native people. But in her vision, and a vision shared by many progressives of the time, that meant taking Native people away from this collective ownership of land or a model based on hunting and gathering and putting them onto single family farms, right? Like the American ideal of New England, right? But the problem is, of course, this is a familiar story to many of us, that the land that was so often given to Native people was not conducive to this type of farming. It's a breakup of traditional cultural practices and one that can be exploited within, you know, maybe there were rules passed that, you know, for a set number of years that farms couldn't be sold off, but land speculators are quickly coming into these places and and taking land in effect from Native Americans. So she, on the one hand, wants to ensure that Native cultures are documented and, and preserved. She, like, Densmore is really interested in Native American music. Um, Famously, when she becomes sick at one point, her friends come and sing to her, her Native friends come and sing to her, sort of deepening this this interest. And she meets some young uh, Omaha uh, individuals uh, who help her uh, uh, meet people in the community and document these things. And again, write things out as sheet music uh, to publish with the Bureau and um, uh, really advanced knowledge about Native Americans. And one more interesting tidbit, so uh, the Omaha community in the year 1899 and 1900 um, lose or have stolen from them some of their most sacred objects in their entire religious worldview, including uh, an incredibly sacred albino buffalo hide, which a shady Chicago dealer claims that he had traded for some whiskey. And Fletcher, in this really remarkable moment, writes letters to people all around the country trying to figure out where this sacred hide has gone, because she knows that her friends uh, in the Omaha community wanted to see it placed with the other sacred objects in their uh, uh, worldview that were already at Harvard University. So this is an interesting thing, again, sort of a contradiction for us to think about, that We think most native people would be really reticent uh, for this dispossession. And indeed in most cases they were. There are examples of like uh, Zuni war gods, for example, that were stolen from literal shrines uh, when they were still being used and shipped off to museums. But in this instance, the Omaha felt like it was the safest place for these materials to be. And indeed those materials were returned in the later 20th century. So Fletcher is a, a, a Alice Cunningham Fletcher is this complicated individual who uh, is progressive minded, but of course we need to think about that in context and think about these really problematic outcomes uh, ultimately for native people.
1: Yeah, it's a really fascinating case. I mean, so much ambiguity in this particular case, someone who is both advocating for indigenous people, but also in, in many ways kind of contributing to The sort of ethnocide, you might say, that is in turn feeding into this vanishing Indian myth that is underlying so much of the impulse behind salvage anthropology. So, really fascinating, complicated case. Yeah, there's another. Oh, go ahead. Quick rejoinder
2: to that. I mean, you could see sort of on the meta level or the 10,000 foot view, sort of the same thing happening with the Bureau of American Ethnology itself. Like, on the one hand, they're trying to document and, and preserve these languages. On the other hand, it's this deeply colonial project, right, that um, it's all about trying to figure out which Native communities could potentially be on which reservations, or, you know, how best to sort of deal with the quote unquote Indian problem. So those things are, are really intimately connected. I think
1: you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's another figure in the history of salvage anthropology I'm interested in, I wanted to ask you about, and that's Franz Boas. So can you tell us a little bit about who Franz Boas was and what his role was in the history of early anthropology? Okay, so part of why
2: I wrote this book was to tell a story of salvage anthropology that goes beyond this figure of Franz Boas. But it turns out that his fingerprints are absolutely over <laughs> all over everything. So Franz Boas was a German immigrant uh, uh, born to liberal Jewish parents in Germany. Um, he uh, is sort of rising through the academic ranks as a geographer in Germany. There's not really a field of anthropology at the time. Um, encounters a great deal of anti-Semitism. comes over to the United States and uh, 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 event after working in Chicago, helping establish what becomes the Field Museum. He ends up in New York uh, at the American Museum of Natural History. He later goes to Columbia University, but uh, for a stretch of time at at the American Museum of Natural History, he builds that into one of the largest and most important salvage collections in the world. He is especially interested in um, having uh, students of his go out into the field and collect and gather. Um, He pulls some of the strings in terms of funding. And he uh, uh, puts this special emphasis on the state of California, which he thinks is sort of this incredible um, testing site, almost, if you you will, for uh, the salvage project. So he becomes this incredibly influential figure. He also, at one point, um, you know, he's got a scar on his face that uh, is rumored to have been picked up in a fight. Uh, And a lot of people who know him sort of believe it that someone had issued an anti-Semitic remark and he, he got into a fist fight with them. So he can be gruff and um, you know, he, can, he can get into sort of these battles with other anthropologists. Um, but reading his letters um, and, and not just in his papers but the letters that are uh, sort of dispersed around different museums, it's clear that he was really intently working on pulling a lot of the strings in the salvage project Um, And he also would, he was very quick to call people out. If he didn't feel like their work met a certain standard, um, he would say, you need to take down this entire exhibit and try again. So um, he had these exacting and high standards. um, But his idea of cultural relativism is probably the one thing that he's best known for. He, again, we're talking about stories of contradictions. So on the one hand, like I write about in, in my first book, Bone Rooms, Boaz personally traffics in human remains. He buys and sells human remains um, over the course of his career in ways that we now really feel are problematic, and they they indeed are. He also is the, the, the most prominent advocate in cultural anthropology for cultural relativism early on, this idea that cultures aren't sort of evolving on the scale from lesser to higher but in fact they're finding unique solutions to the environmental and historical challenges that they have at hand so that's an important transition he also is writing um favorable documents about immigration and immigrants and um writing anti-nazi you know uh, uh, responses in in the popular media so he, he has a difficult, challenged legacy and one that a lot of historians are looking back at, but it's undeniable that he is incredibly important to the story of salvage anthropology in terms of his overall influence.
1: Another feature of your book that I found really interesting and refreshing in a way is the emphasis on visual culture. So the emphasis on painting and other visual, depic- visual forms of representation and documentation in the history of anthropology. So I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about 19th century artists like George Caitlin and Edward Curtis and what they contributed to the history of salvage anthropology, but also more broadly to the history of this vanishing Indian quote unquote myth that we've been talking about.
2: Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, So what became interesting to me when reading about these artists, like artists, like you mentioned, the painters and photographers, later filmmakers, who were interested in documenting native people that people in art history would commonly refer to them as engaging in a salvage anthropology project. And so, you know, in writing this book about what is salvage anthropology, I wanted to interrogate that as an idea and sort of take seriously, like, what if we look at their writings and look at uh, the outcome in terms of uh, of art, and think about this in terms of the same frameworks that we're critiquing the the rhetoric and and the outcomes with anthropologists. And indeed, I find that they're influenced by many of the same factors. Uh, you know, the painters like you mentioned George Catlin, who um, is one of the most prolific, uh, painters of Native Americans in, in the 19th century. Some of his work, original work, is burned in a fire, destroyed in a fire. So you know we, we, we know a lot of sort of his visual record, but uh, the influence was pretty vast even at the time. His work was displayed, for example, at the main lecture hall at the Smithsonian Institution for years. So if you went to go get a lecture, like say on the Arctic world, you would also be surrounded by these paintings of Plains Indians. Um, and so it really helped, in some ways, create this visual language for which we understand and in many ways misunderstand Native Americans, because, of course, they weren't static paintings like they were depicted, you know. So to his credit, Catlin is depicting um, Native people not as like these horrendous amoral savages, but rather he's depicting another sort of stereotype, these like bold Um, brave, uh, mostly men, but some women, you know, sort of backward looking and and traditionalist in uh, 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 these consequential ways, like he would, uh, and then later photographers too, would, you know, move or position things. There's a famous example of of Edward Curtis uh, uh, discovering that in a teepee photograph, that there was a modern alarm clock that someone had, because um, it's way easier to wake up with an alarm clock, right, if you could get access to one from a Sears and Roebuck catalog. But that doesn't look like old-fashioned Native America, right? So he would literally go and, and scratch out those uh, old uh, elements of the, the photograph, the, the sort of these new Western influences, and sell these, these photographs. So to me, its it echoes and is related to uh, the, the salvage anthropology story There's also a commercial element of it, you know, in terms of these folks are trying to make money. They're trying to earn a living. Um, So trying to parse out, you know, what is genuine and sincere interest and where are people sort of playing up to what the market wants, I think was an interesting question to to ask in this section of the book. But yeah, the the, lastly, too, the other thing is that when um, I was coming along in anthropology, even in the early 2000s, um, serious scholars were saying things like, oh, these are different phenomenon that these are disconnected and that the artwork that we have in these anthropology collections should be sold and should be sold to museums of art and art history. So to me, uh, from my individual perspective, after working on this chapter that represents a misunderstanding of the history of the discipline that in fact, that art and art history were were intimately connected to this emergent field of anthropology and it was viewed as a legitimate form of documentation um, and one that was like sort of a cousin to the this new emergent field of ethnography. Um, and there are anthropologists like in New York who are in their letters saying, oh, also I've purchased some of these Edward Curtis photographs and have them hanging up in my apartment, you should come check them out. So um, this idea that Anthropologists sort of dismissed this as, as a little bit of a fable that I think we've invented over time, you know, as sort of an armature to protect these different disciplines. But if you look back in the 19th century, right, like there's much more overlap and uh, porousness, if you will, between the different disciplines. So to me, that that really represented a consequential
1: aspect of the broader salvage movement. I think tell me if correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I remember there's a famous and very controversial case. Of deaccessioning some of these artworks at the Field Museum around the period that you're. And I think you, is it true that you used to work at the Field Museum? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that specific case in particular. Yeah, I was.
2: So uh, I I was really getting my start. That was my first job uh, out, you know, in in, um, sort of, I like to refer to it as my first big kid job, was like helping move, uh, you know, museum objects. And I vividly remember moving the Kaplan paintings in preparation for those being deaccessioned and sold. Uh, here, again, in the pandemic, we're uh, having a fresh conversation about deaccessioning. Um, and you know, to me, I think there's there should be a little nuance in that conversation, right? Like, we sort of have this idea that all deaccessioning is bad, which is not the case. Like, it's to me, it's more like a healthy tree that needs to be trimmed every once in a while in order to sort of keep it as a, as a healthy tree. Um, but that doesn't involve, in my view... Deaccessioning these things that are valuable on the market and sort of being influenced by what's valuable on the market, as paintings are. There's this like inflated value of paintings, famous paintings. Um, and again, we're if we're telling the story of the the history of the institution, the history of the col- the collection, and how anthropology has developed, they're all really consequential objects in in, in that story. So if we think of them in that way, um, I think you know it, from my personal perspective, I think it was um, uh, a a, a decision that one that, you know, maybe had I been in in the position to make those decisions, I might have gone in a different direction. So I'll I'll try to state that as politically diplomatic as as possible, I guess. But um, yeah, it's something that people continue to talk about, like in the art history world or in the museum world, uh, that famous moment of uh, the early 2000s of shifting some of the in, uh, disciplinary emphasis of the museum based on what we sort of think it is now.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party, or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Yeah, and I think I remember the fuel museum was in some pretty dire financial straits at that particular moment. So it's another very interesting, you were talking about the production of these objects as having been both a scientific enterprise, you might say a kind of cultural enterprise, but also very much geared towards, I mean, a commercial enterprise as well that was geared towards the market. And in, in this case, the deaccessioning of these objects, it seems like exactly the same thing is true, that we're mixing commercial value with maybe epistemic value in very, very complicated ways. Um, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question on a more kind of theoretical register, which is about the way that you understand you, but also the the people who produce these objects, the people who consume these objects, my understanding is France Boas was very influential in bringing photography and uh, motion picture film into the history of anthropology as well. So anyway, the way that anthropologists in the 19th and early 20th century understood the status of these different kinds of visual records. So the kind of status, the epistemic status, you might say, but also other kinds of value of this visual record and how they understood the relationship between paintings, for example, and photographs with other kinds of anthropological specimens like material culture, for example.
2: Oh, gosh, that's a
1: great, great question.
2: So a story just jumped out in my mind um, because you know again, it, it connected to this conversation we were having a moment ago, I think that those things are more intimately connected than is frequently drawn. So an example of that is that uh, following the great San Francisco earthquake of the early 20th century, um, of course, So many things are destroyed in the initial shaking, but what is really bad are the fires that follow, these sort of rolling devastating fires that are so awful. Um, And much of the collections at uh, University of California Berkeley are spared fortunately, um, but some are destroyed in those fires, uh, including some rare photographs of the Blackfoot nation Uh, and uh, there were copies of these photographs that were in New York City and so there's a letter from Alfred Kroeber in California to Franz Boas, his his mentor and and collaborator in New York, saying, I want you to know that that collection of photographs is now the only of its kind, so please earmark that in your records. you know, the sort of visual information that is burgeoning, it's growing in people's ability to take cameras further afield and to document things in different types of light. Um, And then also just the ability of amateurs to do it, you know, that someone, it doesn't take like a professional photographer who's been trained to do it in a studio and and develop those things, but rather, you know, um, someone who has been trained on it for a few hours could could sort of lug it around and, and figure it out. So this is, it's interesting to me to see, and uh, there are other scholar, scholars like Brian Hockman, uh, Savage Preservation, who've looked at film. Uh, and I see a similar technological sort of cycle as happening repeatedly, You know, when you go from painting to photographs, but then also the introduction of the phonograph. So this audio material, um, not only were people publishing about it. So if you were reading like specialist literature, you would read about the use of these things. Um, But also at their professional meetings, like at an early, early anthropologist professional meeting, they have a whole table set up uh, dedicated to showing people phonographs for the first time and showing how you could play back this audio that you've recorded in the field. Um, So... Yeah, to me, it's really part and parcel of the intellectual history of the discipline, because the sort of changing forms and formats, um, you know, that early audio could only be captured in two minute spurts. So it means like sort of everything that you're describing in the world of music or audio is sort of condensed into these two minutes. And then four minutes, you know, is sort of this great innovation when they're able to expand the technology. So yeah, I, I don't know that that really answers the question, but I think that um, you know people are certainly watching this and they're writing about it. And it would have been either through reading or through these meetings, it would have been pretty easy to almost like through this osmosis, uh, learn about the technology and how it was being used and being enticed by it. You know, I'll add one more thing that um, it's like a year or two after the Jazz Singer has premiered. Um, that, you know, one of these first talkies, right, where they're able to link up the audio track that Franz Boas is out in the field trying to record audio and video. And he's sort of film, and he's sort of hoping that he'll be able to link those two things up. The technology isn't quite there yet, unless you're in a Hollywood studio to, to make those things. It's like Charlie Chaplin keeps making silent films for another 10 years or something before talkies really become predominant. But you can see the early sort of germination of that, that people are thinking about how do we combine all of these things, like this visual record, the audio track, and sort of the cultural information into what becomes modern documentary film, modern anthropological documentary film. Yeah, like a
1: multimedia experience. That's super fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you a, a different kind of question, which is a question about the role that indigenous people themselves have played in the history of salvage anthropology. So you you began talking about this important theme a little bit in your answer to my question about Alice Cunningham Fletcher, but I just wanted to ask you to elaborate a bit about all the different ways or some of the different ways that indigenous people contributed to or perhaps resisted or otherwise helped helped to shape the history of salvage anthropology. Absolutely. And this is a,
2: an important theme in my book and other scholars who have written about this, like Margaret Bruchac, I want to acknowledge and, and credit, where people are taking a much more serious and in-depth look at collaborators or so-called quote-unquote informants in the story of, of anthropology. And this isn't always easy, right? Because it's it's frequently anonymized or maybe there'll be photographs without people's names recorded. Um, but there are other episodes where we, there's like this long, deep uh, influence uh, of the collaboration and one that's some that we know a great deal about. Um, you know, and, and like you, you, what your question indicated something that's really important is that, you know, there are more than 400 distinct native nations across North America. So that doesn't exactly mean that there are 400 different responses, but there are many different responses to this as a practice. And it evolves, of course, over time. So for example, the Zuni, uh, when Frank Hamilton Cushing is first working with the Zuni, he he has almost like this photographic memory um, and can write these incredible, very detailed descriptions but he's also into sketching things in his notebook. I mean, field notes, you know, like it's, it's sort of, we understand maybe what those are, um, but Cushing starts drawing masks uh, into the field notes. And when members of the Zuni community see that he's drawing those masks, he, they get upset because they feel like he is taking the masks away. So that to them is like this egregious violation of uh, sort of knowledge sharing. And um, I argue that Cushing becomes somewhat more adept at navigating that. Um, And there's the other example of uh, the Zuni war gods being discovered on a shrine that's believed to have been abandoned, but is in fact not. Um, Now, there are figures throughout the story like Eli S. Parker, a Seneca man who um, introduces his collaborator, Lewis Henry Morgan, who frankly gets a lot of the credit as like a quote unquote father of American anthropology But Parker is the one who introduces Morgan to all of his uncles and grandparents and relatives, spiritual leaders in the community. Um, He also works with his sisters or his cousins, maybe, to um, create some important beadwork, Seneca uh, beadwork that's put in museum collections. Unfortunately, that was later destroyed in a fire. But we can really see if we sort of redraw this story and see it as co-joined with Native collaborators, you can see episodes that really run the gamut. Um, where there are egregious violations of what we would consider to be ethical or moral behavior from from our perspective in the contemporary world um, to things that resemble more like genuine friendships um and you know obviously we have to take that with a, a you know something of a grain of salt you know given the context and the power dynamics um but on the other hand as a native author wendy redstar told me um you know i was sort of Talking about some of these um, ways in which people have been exploited and and by their positionality are sort of inherently exploited. And she said, you know, in in an interview we did for the book, she said, I think we need to give people more credit, my ancestors more credit, um, and and, um, think about their agency and that maybe sometimes they were doing things almost from a subversive way to maintain the culture. So, um, you know, once people figured out sort of what this project was. Um, And then sometimes there are appeals to personal pride, right? Like, oh, I talked to this other person who recorded 10 songs with me. And that might be a convincing argument to someone else who said, well, I I know that guy and he doesn't know Jack. So I'm going to record many more songs. And for an anthropologist or a contractor like Francis Densmore, who was maybe paid by the song, that would be a great technique, right? For building up your collection and making a little bit more money. So I, I think we need to rethink the multi directional aspects of this, but also at the same time view this not just as a story of outright exploitation, which in places it very much is. Um, but there's also moments where we really need to put back the agency or, uh, of the, the native collaborators uh, who importantly shifted or altered the story or guided it in certain ways.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, that's a really important point. I think that we often think of salvage anthropology as a as an enterprise of the American federal government and of white scientists. But of course, what you're pointing out, I think, is super important. That um, from an indigenous perspective, it could also be used. The salvage impulse could also be used as something to further indigenous interests and indigenous politics as well, in ways that perhaps were not recognizable to white scientists at the time. Well, and now it's got
2: these very real ramifications. Right, years later. Um... You know, where sort of the federal recognition of tribal sovereignty is based on the sort of exist, you know, the idea like that we can draw some sort of lineal descent back to, you know, your quote unquote original community. Um, And so... this this information that's recorded by anthropologists and linguists and um, many others becomes really consequential for Native people today in court battles that are taking place. This material is considered to be quote-unquote real evidence, whereas oral tradition is frequently dismissed in Western courts. So I I view that as a major problem, of course, but um, it is also just a reality that these materials are not just like these esoteric you know, work of fanciful scholars in the 19th century, they have very real
1: impacts for Native American communities today. Yeah, absolutely. So you're already anticipating the next question that I wanted to ask you. So let me just state the question explicitly, which is that one thing I really found interesting about your book is that the way the history of salvage anthropology is usually told is as though salvage anthropology or the salvage impulse of anthropologists were located uniquely or exclusively in the past. So one thing that I found particularly compelling about your book is that it takes the story of salvage anthropology right up into the present day. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about more recent ramifications or the more recent history of the salvage impulse in anthropology. Sure. So um, yeah, I, you know, one of the questions that this book
2: begins with or begins and ends with is when does this phenomenon start and when does it end? Of course, um, historians, notoriously want to go all the way back, right? Like then the earth cooled and then we have the origins of whatever this thing is that I'm studying. Um, But I do think that it's around the time of the Civil War, the 1861 to 1865 era in the US that this picks up with special intensity and becomes a phenomenon that's really firmly in place by the late 19th and early 20th century. But arguably by World War II, sort of curiously, you start to see people actually use the word salvage in writing about some of these efforts by the 1930s. But it's not until the 1960s and like late 1960s, early 1970s, that people use the word salvage anthropology. And usually they're referring to things that happened in the past when they're talking about that. But it's also interesting that in that same era, the Smithsonian launches a briefly, a short-lived center for the study of man, where they take up a project called Urgent Anthropology. My colleague Adriana Link has written a great dissertation on this, um, where you know similarly people wanted to have these grants go out the door more quickly than on a traditional grant cycle so that um, pe- cultures around the world that were maybe considered to be under duress um, and this is seen as more of a project co joined less with colonialism than with quote unquote modernization. Um, and so to me, that's a project that really echoes some of the, the concerns, but is in certain respects different. They don't quite have the same aggressive um, object oriented uh, collecting emphasis. Uh, it also is, you know, sort of more dispersed. Um, The museum was really the center of the action for anthropology in in the 19th and early 20th century. And when Franz Boas leaves the American Museum of Natural History and goes and takes a professorship at Columbia, sort of signals the start of a sea change where lots of scientists and social scientists are working at prominent universities as opposed to uh, many different museums. Um, So to me, there's really, there is sort of an end of the the salvage era in a way, but we're still in another sense, really living with it because artists and uh, native culture keepers, uh, people working on language reclamation projects and an education are rediscovering these materials in incredibly important sorts of ways. So I do think that there are some, in terms of periodizing this you know, I might say, from the Civil War to World War II is your most active stretch. Um, but we're still living with that legacy in it. And it continues on and echoes on. You know, so there's some comments from anthropologists that say, sort of straight up, I think you know, we're still kind of engaging in the salvage anthropology today. We just don't call it that, and we don't use kind of the same descriptions. But there's this prevailing notion in many ethnographies still to this day of like, here is this society that is distinct or almost like living outside of the bands of time, which is just kind of this mythologized
1: uh, misdirection in a way. Absolutely. Um, So I wanted to, as a way of kind of bringing the interview to a close, I wanted to ask you about uh, the way that you, in writing this book, the way that you as a historian also sought to engage with indigenous people. So the, the, the relationships that you developed with indigenous people and the way that indigenous people helped to shape the story that you tell in this book, particularly too.
2: Yes, yes. Thank you for, for asking that important question. So there's a whole range of that, if I'm if I'm being really honest and trying to like reveal as much as possible to, to people listening to this, um, that not recorded in the book are a whole range of informal conversations that I had. I was very fortunate um, as as a grad student completing my PhD to spend a full year in residence at the Smithsonian. And while I was there working, there were many, many dozens and dozens of visiting delegations. And what became interesting to me is the types of things that they were looking at and that many people would ask these great questions about like where and how this came from and like, why is this here? Why is this other stuff in Chicago? Like, you know, how did this all sort of come to be? So I wanted to write a book that would respond to that, but it became clear that, uh, that it couldn't just include historical voices, right? That um, that I wanted to uh, explore and expound upon Um, why these things were consequential for Native people today. And there were some amazing articles out there. Like there's a lengthy, great Washington Post article about language reclamation projects using 19th century um, language uh, data developed by early linguists. So some of that was covered. That was amazing. Um, But I sought to meet some other people that haven't really been interviewed or talked to in connection with the story, including Native artists. So I met uh, Marie Watt, who is a Seneca artist based out of Portland on the West Coast, and uh, 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 Wendy Redstar, uh, who lives in the Crow Reservation in in Montana. And both of them were uh, extraordinary in teaching me about how they think about museums today, as people who display their own artwork in museums, as as people who sort of um, rely on that in terms of getting their word out there and, and sort of raising their profile and in, in, in visibility in important sorts of ways. Um, but yet they're living with this legacy where Native people have frequently been exploited by salvage anthropology. Um, and Wendy Redstar, in particular, one of the things that she does is take these old collections and, you know, uh, takes a, a printed photograph of some old photographs and blows it up to a large size so that you can see it and annotates it in red pen in really dramatic sorts of ways. Um, so, you know, those conversations really helped me think differently about what, uh, what a museum is and, um, who, you know, who it serves and what the future might be. I'll add one more great conversation. I met, uh, uh uh, uh, Joe Horse Capture many years ago. And I, I uh, interviewed him for this book. He is um, uh, the vice president of research at the Autry Center in uh, Los Angeles and has previously served as a curator at the Minnesota Historical Society and Smithsonian. Um, and he described to me, you know, there are many Native people that are going to these cultural institutions and, and bringing things home or learning about traditions that are no longer practiced that can be reintroduced. Um, So he described it as a love-hate relationship, and I found that to be really compelling and uh, sort of a a nuanced way of thinking about it that um, isn't often fully introduced to the story. So I thought it was important to include all of those voices um, and um, really honestly uh, humbled and and honored when uh, Native people, Native scholars, or Native communities have reached out to me that You know, maybe something in my first book like they found something in a footnote that that was really helpful to them or or found something in in the text that was useful to them. Uh, That's a that's a main reason why I write my books, I hope that people uh, who are, you know, working with visiting delegations or diving into this history in a serious sort of way can can get an overview of how these materials ended up at museums and other cultural institutions.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's it's really a, a rich and a, a fascinating history that you've told. So congratulations on the publication of your book. And thanks again for having this conversation with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.